Now this morning, some of you are probably saying, why in the world is the pastor in Genesis chapter 11? What's he going to babble on about, right? <laughs> well, full disclosure, while I am on Cape Cod on the 10th, I'm preaching at Rob's church. They're going through the book of Genesis, and he gave me an assignment. How do you like that? Son giving dad an assignment. So I'm practicing on you this morning. <laughs> Actually, when Rob told me the text that he wanted to go through, it, it burdened me because what we see in this text really is a picture of the rebellion of man toward God and God's provision for man's sin and man's rebellion. So the more I studied it, the more I thought, wow, what an important passage of Scripture for us to look into. So that's why I want us to look into it this morning. So take your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 11, and we're going to be looking at what the Word of God shares about the events of this time. You know, one of my guilty pleasures is watching YouTube videos of fails. You've probably watched them too. Somebody who has greatly overestimated themselves and greatly underestimated gravity tries to pull off a stunt and it ends badly. Crash, boom, bang, probably stitches and casts are involved. But I started thinking about that. Why? Do people do these things? I mean, a lot of times you look at what they're doing and you're saying, what were they thinking? Why in the world were they trying to even attempt this? And again, it boils down to that overestimation of self and underestimation of gravity. Well, as I think about that, I think about a towering fail that we find in the Old Testament, and that is the Tower of Babel. In this, man definitely had an overestimation of himself. But unfortunately, it wasn't just gravity that he underestimated. It was God. Man was not esteeming God the way that he should. And as a result, he went down a path and was heading in a direction away from God. And so what we want to see this morning as we look into this text here in Genesis chapter 11 is first of all, what led man to this place? Why did man move in a direction that was lifting up man and devaluing God? And I would ascribe that purpose to one word, and that's pride. When we look in the Word of God, we find that pride leads people to rebel against God again and again and again. And certainly that's spelled out in the book of Genesis, isn't it? When we look at the fall of man, pride was the primary purpose behind that. Man wanted to become like God. When we look at the path that man followed after the fall, man started doing everything that he wanted to do and disregarding what God had told him to do, how God had told him to live. And so God destroyed the whole earth with the Genesis flood during the time of Noah. Genesis chapter 11 comes a few generations after Noah and his family survived the flood. 
And what we find in Genesis chapter 11 is once again man striking out in a direction of his own apart from what God had told him to do. You see, after the flood in Genesis chapter 9, the Lord had told man that he was to spread out throughout the earth and repopulate the earth. This was God's clear direction. When we look in Genesis chapter 10, we start to see some of the areas where man spread out. But then in Genesis chapter 11, it's a snapshot that isn't in chronological order that explains what precipitated man moving in various directions rather than just obeying what God had told him to do in Genesis chapter 9. In Genesis chapter 11, we find the event of the Tower of Babel. And in this, we find that man begins to pursue a life that excludes God. Look carefully at the first two verses of this 11th chapter and see that it says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. So when we look at this, we would think, wow, that would be kind of neat. Just think, if all of us could come together and we could all speak the same language and we all understood what one another was saying, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be optimum? And listen, had man used that one language and that one word to elevate God and to worship Him and to praise Him, it could have been a good thing. As a matter of fact, I would say that there is coming a time when God will establish that, where God will have us all coming together, praising Him, worshiping Him. But the heart of man has to change before that can happen. And what we find in Genesis chapter 11 is not a heart that's directed toward God, but it's a heart that's directed toward man. And so there was this sense of unity, but in reality it was a false unity. It was a unity that was man-centric rather than God-centric. And so look at what happens in verse 2. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain, the land of Shinar, and settled there. Now, God's clear direction was spread and populate the earth. Man's rebellion was, no. We like the plain of Shinar. We're going to settle here. God can't tell us to go and populate the earth because we're just fine right here in the plain of Shinar. Really, what they were doing was pursuing this idea of humanism. Humanism, at its core, is the understanding that man makes his own rules. He doesn't follow God's. Man chooses the direction he will go, not the purpose and the plan of the Creator. Man decides as the created that he knows better than the creator. And this is an ideology that we find pervasive throughout human history. More recently, what we find is really a commitment to this idea of humanism. And what we find is, when you look online, there's even something called the Humanist's Manifesto. And what it is, it lays out this idea of excluding God and His purpose and His plan because in their mind God doesn't exist and elevating mankind. In fact, listen to these words from 
the humanist manifesto. No deity will save us. We must save ourselves. We are responsible for what we are and for what we will be. That's their understanding of their interaction with their world. It's all wrapped up in human beings, not something that God says, but something that man says, because in their mind, God is irrelevant if he exists at all. Really, that's the direction that the people in Genesis chapter 11 were headed. They were headed away from what God had clearly called them to do, and they were committed to doing what they wanted to do, and so they settled in. And you know, as we look at this, it's, it's easy for us to say, wow, what's wrong with those people in Genesis chapter 11? But I find that sometimes we can take that same ideology where we settle in, where God has called us and directed us to go and to do something. We look and we say, you know, I'm kind of comfortable right here, right now, right where I am. I don't want to get stretched. I don't want to do something that I don't want to do. I like it here. I'm settling in. Listen, God has a purpose and a plan that unfolds for us all. And He reveals so much of His truth in the Word. And we dare not come to the place where we say, I'll settle in, I'll go my own direction, I'll do my own independent thing. Because to do that leads us into pride. We don't want to be people who pursue lives that exclude God. And so many of us have that temptation to just go on automatic pilot, to think in the moment, to choose to live life as we see best, disregarding God in our decision-making. That was disastrous for the people on the plain of Shinar there at Babel, and it's disastrous for us as well. But then we see something else. As we move to the third verse, we find that not only did they settle where God had told them not to settle, but the people during that time also presumed that they could set terms on how to come to God. Look at the third verse, and it says this. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Now, what's going on? They have decided that we're settling in here on the plain of Shinar so much that we're going to build permanent structures we're going to make our own bricks. We will bake them thoroughly so that they will last forever. And then we're going to take bitumen, which is pitch, kind of a tar-type substance, and we're going to smear it in between the bricks so that they stick together and there's permanence to this structure. Some theologians even think that perhaps they used pitch because what did Noah put over the ark to keep water from getting in. Pitch. You see, even though God had promised that He would not send another flood, this was their insurance policy. This was them saying, we're going to bake bricks, pitch it, and then we're going to make sure that if a flood comes, we'll climb to the top of the tower and we'll avert being killed. Look at what else the text says, though. As it goes on in that 
Fourth verse, look at what it says. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower. Now, do you catch the language of that? Let us build ourselves a tower. This was not something in honor of God to the glory of God, but to the glory of man. It was man saying, how great I art. It was man saying, look at this building that I'm putting up. God doesn't know what he's talking about when he says, go and spread throughout the earth. I know better. So what I'm going to do is build this permanent structure, and it's going to be a monument to me. Not following the instruction of God. You know, about two years ago, I was out on Cape Cod on vacation. Notice the grandkids didn't have a swing set. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to build them a swing set. I started pricing what swing sets cost, and it's kind of like, yikes, you know. Maybe I'll make them a swing set uh, out, out of some more discounted pieces. So I went to Toys R Us, and they had a great sale on a swing set. And I said, oh, this is great. I'm going to buy this swing set and put it together. And it turns out that these two boxes were enough to build a small house. <laughs> it was ridiculous. I pull it apart... And there were about a thousand pieces there right in front of me. And I said, oh my goodness, this is a project. My two grandsons came to help and kept carting off pieces that I needed for various things, and I'd have to go track them down. So finally, I said, Paula, for my sanctification, can you take the kids to the park? <laughs> and she did. And I decided, hey, I don't need no stinking instructions. I'll put it together. And what happened? Five steps into it, I find out that I needed to do step two correctly in order for step six to work. So I disassembled it and then religiously followed the instructions and finally had a functioning swing set. Pride had me telling myself, I don't need to follow the instructions. And with mankind, isn't that what we do? We love to rebel. We love to strike out on our own. We don't like to follow instructions. God has given us clear instructions in his word. And we will launch out in our own direction, and we will, again, overestimate ourselves, underestimate God, and it never ends well. It never works properly. This is what the people on the plain of Shinar were doing. And so here they are trying to build this city, trying to build this tower. And notice what that fourth verse goes on to say. They said to themselves, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. You know what their purpose was? We will reach God. We will build this tower and it will reach all the way to God. I will come to God on my terms, not God's terms. And that thought process has invaded the hearts and the thoughts of men throughout human history. 
Rather than looking at God's instructions, how do I come into a relationship with Him, man launches out in his own ideology, his own thought process about how to reach God, and it's a huge fail. It doesn't work out. Man cannot reach God on his terms. Because man is the created, God is the creator. God puts the rules and the principles in place as creator, but man is constantly coming and saying, I can do it better, or I can do it differently. And as a result, we lose our way. But then we see something else in this fourth verse. We find the purpose in all of this. It says, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens, and then look at the motivation, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. You know what their purpose was? The praise of their own glory. Let us make a name for ourselves. When other people, if they do spread out, come and see what we've done, they're going to say, wow, look at what the people on the plain of Shinar did. They are awesome. They're wonderful. They're great. Man was seeking his own personal glory rather than the glory of God. So there's disobedience, there's disregard for God's instruction, and now here is man dishonoring God and honoring himself. Building this tower so that people could look and say, Look at their greatness. Really, what man was doing was setting it up so that they could worship the created rather than the creator. They wanted to worship the works of their hands rather than God who had created them. And listen, when man does this, the Word of God tells us that he loses his way. Paul wrote this in the book of Romans. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. This is where man goes when man looks to do things in and of himself apart from God. This is man's self-glory where the created tries to define the creator. As the created, we don't define God, we discover God. And we discover God only through His revelation, what He has said about Himself. So we don't want to be people who, like these people at the Tower of Babel, turn their back on God, go their own independent way, and choose to try and reach God by their works and their deeds rather than responding to what God freely provides. And you know, as I thought about this, I think that there is this natural tendency on man to constantly look at ourselves and say, I did this, look at what I did. God has to accept me because I've done so much. And really, all of that is about the glory of man rather than the glory of God. I don't know about you, but I'm not sure I would want to spend eternity in heaven hearing people catalog what they did to get there. That would be awful. 
I'm thankful that when we are in heaven, I can turn to anyone in heaven and say, I got there by the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross for me and by his grace. And you did too. (laughs) That's what we all celebrate. Not man, but God. So then the story continues. And we come to the second part of this passage when we come to the fifth verse. And in this, we find that even though man's pride causes him to rebel against God, God's power overcomes man's sin. In the fifth verse, this is what we find. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. Now, let's pause for a moment. I love the way this is framed in the scripture. The Lord came down to see. Here is man saying, we're going to build a tower and it's going to reach all the way to heaven. Well, guess what? They didn't quite get there. And so God comes down to see. I think it's framed that way because it shows the ridiculousness of man saying, I'm building a tower to God. Man does not ascend to God. God descends to man. That's the truth of this passage of Scripture. But man gets it all confused. And so here is man saying, I can reach God, and here is God saying, no, you can't, and I will come down to see what you foolish people are doing. Now, let me explain this. God did not have to come down to have a closer look because he couldn't see that well from heaven. That is not the theology of this passage. The theology of this passage is God was descending to man. Man was full of himself, But God wanted to express to man, no, you can't get here on your own. You know, there's an Asian parable about a palm tree and a gourd. And so here you have this majestic, towering palm tree. And a gourd sprouts up at the bottom of the palm tree, and it starts to weave its way up. And within two or three weeks, there it is, all the way at the top of the palm tree. And this gourd, this is a parable, so gourds can talk. I don't want you to think I'm out of my gourd by sharing that. But here is this vine, this gourd, and it says, how old are you to the palm tree? The palm tree says, over 100 years. And the gourd says, you know, in just a few weeks, (laughs) I've reached the same height as you for over 100 years. What's up? And the palm tree says to the gourd, you know, every year, There's a gourd that grows up and says the same thing that you're saying. (laughs) The point of the parable is we think too highly of ourselves. We forget that we're just not that much. (laughs) We're not eternal. We're not lasting. We're in the moment. But yet there is holy God and he comes down to see what man is doing. And and look at what it goes on to say, verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Now, there are some people that get very confused by that sixth verse. They look at it and they say, What, is God threatened? by these people building this tower? Why is he concerned about them being able to do anything that they set out to do? And I think we misunderstand the meaning of that text if that's the direction that we go into. 
What I think the text is communicating is this. Look, these people are heading down the wrong path and they're going to continue heading down that wrong path at a more accelerated rate. And it will become unbelievable the terrible sin, the terrible things that they will do. They're going to purpose in the direction away from God and the depth to which they sink will be shocking. 62 years on planet Earth, just about in August, it'll be 62. And let me tell you something. Stuff that I never imagined would happen when I was a kid went beyond what I thought would happen. I look at some of the sin and the despicable behavior that takes place in our world. And it's shocking. Man, when he chooses a path away from God, there's no bottom to that pit. He keeps moving away, and really what God is assessing is the heart of man and his rebellion. And what he's saying is, if it's bad now where they're disregarding me and trying to make their way to me on their own, if I don't intervene, then it's going to get so much worse. So I'm going to stop the plans of these sinful men. I'm going to put the brakes on it. And look at how he does that. When we come to the seventh through ninth verses, we find that God protects man from himself. I'm so glad that God protects me from me. There are times where I think some decision is just monumentally good, and I haven't prayed, and I haven't sought God on it, and I'm just going to go in this direction, and this is what's going to happen, and then the brakes get put on. And initially, I'm frustrated, and I'm saying, God, why did you do this? How come you put a stop to this? There's nothing wrong with this. And then I discover, a little further down the path, that would have been a disaster. Thank you, God, for saving me from me. That would have been awful. Look at this text in verse 7. It says this, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. God's first step in resolving man's issue where he was gathering together on the plain of Shinar to reach God through this tower was we will divide them. We will confuse their language. Really, that's what the term Babel means, the confusion. What's interesting about this region is this. Babel becomes the heart of religions that stand opposed to God. When you look throughout the Old Testament and you trace the people in that region, in Babel, throughout the Old Testament, they had doctrines and teachings and beliefs that refused to follow God. The confusion of their language was really a confusion of their mind as well because they chose to abandon God and turn away from Him. What's truly intriguing is not only do we find Babel in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, but we find Babylon 
which is a descendant of Babel, in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, it talks about Babylon, the great prostitute, the great whore. And it pictures Babylon as a place that is a one-world religion, a one-world government with a one-world leader. Isn't it interesting that Genesis talks about a group of people that come together and say, we're going to do our own thing, and we're all going to stay together, and we're all going to reach God in our way. And then in the book of Revelation, you find the same thought process as man chooses to disregard God and to rebel against Him. So here is God's solution. He's saving man from himself. He's going to stop this process. He's going to confuse their language. Man becomes so proud. We choose our course, and we're going to continue down that path, on that course, and there's nothing that's going to turn us away. You know, there's a story about a newly commissioned captain on a destroyer. And here he is saying, man, I've got it together. I have my own destroyer. I'm the captain of my fate and my ship, and we're going off to sea. So it's a stormy night, and he's going, and he sees a light off in the horizon, and he sends a message, change your course 10 degrees. And he hears back, you change your course 10 degrees. And so he sends back a message, and he says, I said change your course 10 degrees, I'm the captain. And he gets a response, ten, change your course 10 degrees, I'm the lighthouse. <laughs> we get so sad in our ways, we get so drawn into this idea that I will go my own independent way, I'm going to do what I want to do, nobody's going to tell me any different. And we miss. We have to change our course. God caused the people on this plain of Shinar to change their course, and that's exactly what they did. He confused their language. And so look at verse 8. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off the building of the city. That plan, total course change. And then this explanation in verse 9. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. This was God's purpose. This was God's plan. And normally, we would think, oh, the story ends there. But it doesn't. You see, when you look at the rest of the chapter, you find the descendants of Shem, one of the descendants of Noah, and you look at a lot of names of unfamiliar people in unfamiliar places until you get to the very end of the passage. At verse 27, we find the descendants of Terah. And one of the descendants of Terah is named Abram. And Abram we know better as Abraham. And here's the part that amazes me about this text. You have man rebelling against God, God saving man from himself in that moment, but then the broader scope at the conclusion of Genesis 11 is 
God makes a way and a path for man's ultimate salvation through Abraham. Because who is a descendant of Abraham? The Lord Jesus Christ. Man's rebellion, man's need, and yet the grace of God is operative. And God, in all of His grace, makes a path, makes a way for man's ultimate salvation. I think there's important lessons in this text for all of us. Listen, it's easy for us to pursue a path that says, I know better than God, or I can somehow reach God. There are so many belief systems around us that say we can work our way to God. We can reach God on our terms or the terms of a religion that I'm buying into. What makes God's Word unique is this. God makes the way to salvation in Christianity. It is provided by the Lord Jesus Christ, a descendant of Abraham, His death on the cross pays for our sin. Peter said this, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Grace is God's unmerited favor. And here's the interesting thing about grace. Grace can only be received by the humble. If God offers me salvation on the basis of Jesus' death on the cross, and I say, no way, I've got to do something to earn God's favor and salvation, that is human pride kicking in and saying, I earn my way to God. Humility says, yes, I am helpless, and I am hopeless, and I need the Savior. The idea of Genesis chapter 11 continues in the heart of man. Man continues to say, I'll earn my way to God, I'll work my way to God, I'll come to God on my terms, not His terms, and as a result, there is confusion upon confusion and many who have turned away from God pursuing that path. Let me encourage you this morning Your path to God is marked out in God's Word. Follow the instructions. Don't be proud like the sea captain who says, I will not change course because you'll crash on the rocks. God's gospel is our lighthouse, and it sends a clear message to us all that you can have a relationship with the Father by believing on the Son by believing on His death on the cross, by trusting that He is your only hope of salvation and finding a relationship with God. I know most of you here this morning have discovered that and you trust in that. But you have family members, loved ones who haven't. Pray. Pray that they will open their hearts to the truth of this gospel and that they will find God on the Creator's terms, not try to set those terms as the created. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this text. Thank You for the reminder that it is to us all that we have a way that has been made for us by You, the God of all grace, 
that gives us a path to knowing you and experiencing a relationship with you. Thank you, Lord, for saving us from ourselves so often. May we be humble. May we put aside our rebellious pride and pursue you. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond by singing.